Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. Today we're going to be finishing our review and discussion of the debate that I had with Matt Slick on the doctrine of justification through faith alone by the imputation of Christ's righteousness or his act of obedience. Before we get into that, however, I want to mention that if you enjoy this content and are interested in helping me to continue producing a high volume of content, as well as interested in getting access to premium exclusive content, and as well if are in a financially sound position, please consider becoming a patron linked below. There are three tiers, $5, 10 and $20, and each of them provides access to a higher level of premium content. Today, I have already uh, shared the recording of my post-Matt Slick debates uh, live stream. It's about two hours long. And this afternoon, I will be discussing in a 20 to 30 minute book review N.T. Wright's book, Justification. And we're going to be talking about exactly what N.T. Wright has to say about justification and what its relationship is with the traditional Protestant doctrine and the Orthodox and Catholic teachings. Uh, the live stream uh, recording is available to patrons $10 and up, uh, while the book review will be available to patrons from all three tiers. Uh, though for about a, a third to a half of those book reviews, uh, they will be available to all three. For two-thirds to a half of the book reviews, they will be available only to $10 uh, and up. So $10 is really the kind of standard uh, tier. So I would very much uh, uh, be appreciative uh, if you became a patron. That said, I have been really excited at all the new viewers that I've gotten in general, and uh, you already have my sincere thanks just for participating in this community, as it were. I guess we're calling everything a community these days, so you guys really are a community. Okay, so let's continue what we were talking about yesterday. Uh, the first thing I want to do is talk about Matt Slick's article on the debate. Someone in my comment section uh, helpfully pointed out that Matt had uh, written a short discussion of the debate, uh, saying that I was a competent debater. And thank you very much. Um, sincerely, sincerely. Um, that's not an ironic statement. Uh, thank you for those kind words. But also he suggested that I did not deal with his central arguments. Um, now, most of what he said in that uh, article had already been discussed within the debate itself. Uh, essentially, my problems are this. First of all, he framed my affirmation of legal, forensic, and financial language in the scriptures as an admission. So repeatedly, we see the phrase used, Cobain admitted. Now, it's possible that such a word could be used even when there's no meeting in the middle or concession kind of thing going on. But I think really that word is generally used to imply that someone would rather not have affirmed what they in fact affirmed, that they only affirmed it because the force of the evidence was so strong that they had to admit something which wasn't altogether amenable for the argument that they were making. But this is not true at all. Uh, in my opening statement, which I had outlined before he made his opening statement, I said a great deal about financial and forensic language, and I'll say it again, forensic and financial language is used throughout 
the scriptures, and it would have to be affirmed regardless of whether there had been a Protestant Reformation or not. My argument, as I discussed both in the debate and in the last video discussing the debate, was that nobody, nobody believes that financial and forensic language is true in the literal sense, according to the way that we usually use the word literal. So nobody believes that we actually owe God a, a check worth $100. Debt is used to signify something about our relationship to God spiritually. Uh, likewise, nobody believes that we are literally going to a courthouse where God is going to literally sit and literally render a verdict in the Anglo-American tradition. Instead, we believe something about the final judgment and the final state of our soul and body in the resurrection of the dead. By the way, if you hear banging, that is because that some work is being done on my roof. Uh, so I, I'm apologize if that, um, if, if that disturbs you. Uh, so nobody affirms forensic or financial language in this strictly literal sense. We all believe that it is used in one way or another symbolically to describe our relationship to God. My argument was that the language was used symbolically to signify the degree to which we were separated from what we ought to be and being created in the image of God. What we ought to be is in communion with God. So if we owe $10 to somebody and we can only pay $5, the degree of separation between what we ought to give them and what we can actually give them is $5. So we say we have a $5 debt. Now, because God is infinite and the distinction between something which is infinite and something which is finite is infinite itself, our separation, our rupture from the uncreated life of God is itself an infinite debt because debt signifies the separation between what we are, what we are in relation to God, and what we actually are actively producing by our own active will. So to pay that debt, according to this grammar of symbolism that I've just described, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has the glory of God because he is God, becomes a human being and repairs that relationship which was broken. He makes us sons of God because he is himself the son of God who has lived out his life as the son of God in human nature. And so the scriptures referring to the riches of God's glory also refer to the sacrifice of Christ as a reparation offering, sometimes translated guilt offering. Reparation, you see the word repair in there, and the connotation is also present uh, in the Hebrew language. We see throughout the prophets, for example, that again and again we see phrases like, you are sold without money, therefore you will be redeemed or bought back without money. I invite you to buy uh, bread without money. Jesus says in the New Testament, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Again and again, we see this language used to describe our relationship to the uncreated grace of God as that grace is actually or is actually not 
operating in our souls. This is actually a insight that I first uh, learned from St. Seraphim of Serov and his on the acquisition of the Holy Spirit of God. And subsequently, I realized that it was an incredibly profound insight about reading the scriptures because this financial language is absolutely pervasive. Jesus, for example, uses uh, the language of investment to describe what we ought to be in relation to God according to his own messianic program. We ought to, we're given a talent and we ought to invest it or lend it out at interest so that we can pay God back more than we were originally lent. And of course, all of this is done by the uncreated grace of the Holy Spirit, such that the Apostle Paul says, not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. So because of the nature of what it means for something to be symbolic or metaphorical, my reading of this text is no more or less symbolic or metaphorical than Matt's reading of the text. Both of us take the language of finance and law to refer to our relationship to God. The difference is, as far as I can tell, that I provided a basis for why I believe that this is the biblical concept, whereas Matt simply asserted that it was intrinsically evident in the concept itself. Now, some people may regard that as obvious or self-evident, but my argument would be that that is simply because that is the concept that they have accumulated and learned in their own systematic theology. It is not intrinsic to the notion, and the evidence for that is that, as someone pointed out, quoting from the Alistair McGrath book, the, no, the note of uh, the idea of imputed justification is a very new idea in church history. Uh, if someone wishes to argue against that, that's okay, but even if they could find some precedent in church history, the fact remains that the vast majority of witnesses to the Christian tradition and the vast majority of readers of Paul's epistles have not read it as teaching imputed justification. Does that prove that I'm right? No. What it does suggest is that the, it is not as self-evident a reading as Matt wishes to argue. Okay, before getting to the second point, I did want to just mention one other thing. Um, actually, a couple other things. Um, first of all, at the end of Matt's article, he suggested that the fruits of Eastern Orthodoxy were evident in comments in the live chat, which he regarded as uh, not living up to the standards of Christian speech. Now, in reading those comments, I thought that many of them were quite mild and were essentially uh, just banter, uh, kind of like Matt Slick making a joke, which I took as a joke, and I, I, I was not offended in the least by it, uh, made a joke about my hair, which has been the butt of jokes for years and years and years. You have to develop a sense of humor if you're going to survive. But admittedly, there were some people there who spoke in ways that I would not have spoken, uh, who uh, used their tongue in ways that the New Testament teaches against. Um, my issue is uh, multiple. First of all, uh, this does not entail the falsity of my position, nor does it suggest the falsity of my position, especially because it wasn't me who was speaking that way. I mean, if he believes that I spoke that way, uh, he's free to pr provide evidence for that. But I don't want to make this like a personal feud or whatever. My point is just that that doesn't seem to me to be a major point, especially not given the relative amount of space that he devoted to this uh, section in his article. Uh, second of all, uh, 
if he believes that this allegedly represents the fruit of orthodoxy in such a way that the that the truth of the orthodox position is called into question then one could by the same token raise the question of the behavior of new calvinists on the internet um, and i'm not going to quote anybody because i don't think it's a valid argument and i think we could play that game all day but i will say that the behavior of new calvinists on the internet uh, is not something which i'm making up it is something which has been criticized by representatives of the reformed tradition themselves because very often this stuff is just not about the particular this or that particular tradition it's simply about issues where emotions run high and where people naturally exercise their will in ways that are uh, more consistent shall we say with the adamic nature than with that nature which has been redeemed by christ but again i thought those the comments that he quoted were usually relatively mild so i was surprised honestly that he devoted the uh, that amount of space to this issue um, the final thing I want to say is uh, a comment on some of the comments that I got in my last video. Um, I said, and I stand by this statement, that Matt was gracious in the debate, that it was a cordial debate, um, and that I truly appreciated, especially, uh, the fact that he didn't interrupt me, nor did he complain, respectfully or otherwise, about the amount of time which I often used to answer his questions. Now, someone in the comments, uh, a couple people actually, uh, pointed to other examples where they believed that Matt had been out of line. And that may or may not have been the case. As I said, I haven't actually seen any of his other debates. But one phrase which I did take issue with, and I'm not picking on this person, plenty of people express the same attitude. Um, it's just that this is a concise phrase for uh, pointing to it is that Matt in other cases has revealed his true colors now now my problem with this is that as long as we are on this side of the world to come we don't have true colors we have mixed colors people are always complicated and people will always behave in ways that are righteous on the one hand and perhaps unrighteous on the other hand so I think the same standard that we would apply to ourselves especially given the fact that I have such a long internet footprint and have said lots of things that I'm not proud of in ways that I'm not proud of. That's why, I, I mean, that's why I said Matt was gracious and cordial in the debate and why I would be very happy to continue to engage him uh, in debate and in theological discussion in both public and private context going forward. Because uh, I think that he sincerely is persuaded of his position. I believe his arguments are, are, are not uh, good or sound for that position, but I believe he's sincerely persuaded by it. Um, and uh, moreover, I think such discussions could be productive both for the audience and in terms of Matt and I refining our own respective positions. Just one final word. Uh, someone did mention in the comments that uh, they felt at the end of the debate when Matt said that Orthodox were uh, under God's wrath and were going to hell, like Catholics were, uh, that that essentially kind of cooled the spirit of cordiality which had prevailed through the debate and while of course i reject the idea that orthodox are unregenerate and are uh, are damned i don't think that actually this should have been taken as an exception even an exception to the rule and the reason for that is that it was simply a statement of what matt legitimately believes to be true uh, the reason that he 
says that is because he takes Orthodox and Catholics to be teaching the same thing substantially as the Judaizers whom Paul criticizes in the letter to the Galatians. And Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you are fallen from grace. And so Matt holds that be, since you can essentially put a Catholic or an Orthodox person in there, he has to stay, say by the same token that we are severed from Christ. Um, so he believes that to be true, and so I don't think stating that is, is even a faux pas. We have to be able to be candid, uh, especially in debates on such highly charged matters. I have to be able to say, for example, that uh, someone uh, who follows the traditional religion of uh, Old World India is committing, to one degree or another, the sin of idolatry. Okay, so... Now we will get to this second point that I have up here, uh, the nature of the biblical law court. Now, I wish that I had called more attention to this after my opening statement. In general, I'm very pleased with how the debate panned out. Um, I would encourage those who haven't seen it to go see it and, and make that decision for themselves. Uh, but this was such a central point structurally in my opening statement uh, that I wish I'd called attention to it again in the rebuttal and in the post-rebuttal kind of free-form discussion. And my argument was essentially this. If we want to talk about what forensic language in the scriptures mean, then we first need to establish what legal tradition the scriptures are working in. For example, the Anglo-American legal tradition, or even the American versus the English legal tradition, is distinct from other traditions around the world. So, for example, the, the tradition of the Orient is going to be distinct in a number of ways from the tradition of the English-speaking world. The tradition of continental Europe is going to be distinct in one way or another from the tradition of the Orient and from the English-speaking world, and so on and so forth. So we have multiple of these, these ideas of what forensic... Uh, we have multiple ideologies of within which one might use forensic language. And forensic words are not used univocally. That's a fancy way of saying they don't only mean one thing, such that a use in one place and a use in another place necessarily means exactly the same concept. So one has to establish what kind of law court the scriptures are talking about. And my argument was that the biblical law court, we're talking, of course, about the divine law court, must be understood in the terms of the temple. And there's several reasons that I say that. For example, or to begin with, the judiciary is not independent from the royal family or the executive in biblical terms. This is something which is so ensconced in the Western legal tradition that we have to mention it explicitly or else we're going to misunderstand what's going on in biblical law courts. For the scriptures, the king is the supreme judge and magistrate of the nation. Second, the courtroom of the king is his palace. This is where he sits and from which he renders judgments. Now, as he sits on his throne, one of the signs of his authority, as we see in the book of Esther, is he drinks wine or he hosts feasts. This is a tradition throughout uh, traditional societies. The king might call the lords to a feast. And so we see the connection between the notion of the family at the dining table with the uh, civil power. It's all authority is one way or the other derived from the authority of God the Father 
authority in the scripture is always elucidated in terms of fatherhood. And that is why in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a restatement of the Torah based on the ten words, the authority of the civil magistrate is unfolded in the section of the book of Deuteronomy which deals with the fifth word or the authority of parents. So the house of the king is the palace and the king is the civil magistrate and he has his kingship, his authority in virtue of his being father of the nation. Now the word for palace in the Hebrew language is the same word used for the temple. And we see the analogy between David's house, the palace of the king, and God's house in 2 Samuel 7. David says, you've given me such a great house, meaning both his royal family and the physical architecture, which expresses the splendor of his royal authority. Uh, you've given me such a great house, and now I want to build you a house. And, and then God gives him the covenant which says that the real house that he will build is the seed which comes from the line of David, which of course anticipates the incarnation because the house in which God truly and permanently dwells is the very bone and blood of King David. But God's law court, the true biblical context for forensic language, is going to be the temple because this is the royal house from which God renders his judgments. And we see this in texts like Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 has the prophet entering the temple, and in the temple, the prophet sees the Lord sitting on his throne, and he is surrounded by a multitude of counselors. This is the heavenly or divine council. They are sometimes called gods, and they exercise authority. They are the focal point of the government of the world. Now, in the New Covenant, we are seated in the Divine Council. We are seated in heaven with Christ, as Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians. This is the basis, in part, for the language of theosis, for example. Since in the Old Covenant, those who were in the Divine Council are called gods, are called Elohim, so also in the New Covenant do we, in a sense, become gods without becoming equal to the He who alone is uncreated and from whom all life and glory and authority flows. So if we want to understand the law court in the Bible, we must understand the court itself, which is the temple. And this is the central point with respect to justification and sanctification. Now, Matt didn't in this debate make a big deal about the words justification and sanctification, but it's very common, and I've seen Matt do it in some of his articles, very common for the Protestant to assert that the major root of false doctrines, so they think of justification, is a failure to appreciate the distinction between justification and sanctification. And so in their systematic uh, uh, confessional theology, justification is that by which you are declared to be righteous, perfectly righteous, and so received into the presence of God on that basis because of the alien righteousness that is it's external to yourself of Christ, which is imputed to you through faith alone, because faith is that empty hand which can receive the fullness of what God has to give. Anything which already brings something to the table doesn't have room, so to speak, for this alien righteousness, which in totality and alone can provide the basis for a right verdict. Now, Protestants 
confessionally and historically are not antinomians. That is, they do not believe that it's unimportant to follow the law of God. They do not believe that what God is doing in his children, the way he's actually transfiguring them, making them holy in his sight, they do not believe that's unimportant. But they would say that the work of making us new creatures in Christ begins with regeneration and is described in ongoing terms with the language of sanctification. So justification is that by which you are declared righteous, and sanctification is that process by which you are actually made holy, by which you come to live in a way consistent with the calling of the gospel. That's the Protestant way of articulating it in general, and I think it's uh, Matt's way of articulating it. The difficulty here is that the scriptures simply do not use these words that way. If you want to argue that the concept is there, it needs to be done on different terms than justification and sanctification. Because as I pointed out in the debate, and, and this wasn't addressed, I mean, there were many things were addressed. This, I'm not going after Matt for not addressing this in particular, but just to repeat the point, the only place in which these two words are used together in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 6.11, where they seem to be essentially equated. Thou art washed, thou art sanctified that were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of a God. The context here is Paul is listing off a series of sins which will exclude a person from the final kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of a God. It's an actual internal transformation here. And the key thing here is that because there are three words and not two, and we know that both washing and sanctify refer to an internal recreation of the creature in Christ. There is no reason to take justification in this context as referring to something utterly different than sanctification or washing. Moreover, my way of reading the text is more consistent with the overarching biblical context. Sanctification uh, is a English word which translates the group of words uh, pertaining to holiness. So it's um, uh, holy ones or saints is agioi. And I know it's a Rasmian pronunciation, but yeah, whatever. Um, if you don't know what that means, ignore it. It's unimportant. Um, sanctification refers to making holy. And this group of words is most often used in connection with ritual holiness. So if you purify yourself or consecrate yourself so that you are prepared for the coming of God, that, for example, at Mount Sinai, you are making yourself holy in that sense. Sometimes the psalmist says, for I am holy. What he means is not I am morally perfect, but I am consecrated to the service of God. A priest has a certain level of ritual holiness. Now, of course, this ritual holiness is symbolic for the actual inner state of our persons, and that involves ethical and moral duties. So if the law court, in biblical terms, is the temple, because that's where God sits as supreme judge and magistrate, and it's where his counselors sit as subordinate judges and magistrates, and we see in the prophets that part of the messianic age is not only that the king will come, but he will make his people princes under him. Isaiah 32, a king will reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in justice. If that is what the law court fundamentally is, well, then it's very difficult to understand why justification and sanctification should be so sharply separated from one another. Because sanctification refers to 
that which is necessary to enter the presence of the temple. One becomes a legitimate priest if one is consecrated to God. Justification, well, it refers to this in the language of the law court, but when we understand what the biblical law court refers to in divine terms, it is the temple itself. And that point was never really addressed, and part of that is my fault. I, I didn't uh, bring that point up again um, after he didn't address it in his first rebuttal. But I just wanted to uh, go through that in a little bit of detail here. By whose work are we justified? This is another, another major question. Part of this in exegetical terms is related to the question of the translation of the subjective genitive. Now, most commentators in antiquity understood, the, understood uh, pistis Christu according to the objective sense, that is, faith in Christ. However, most translations in antiquity understand the phrase in its subjective sense, that is, faith of Christ or faithfulness uh, of Christ. Now, both of these translations could potentially be interpreted in a way which is consistent with the tradition of the church. So when we say we have to be faithful to the tradition, it's not necessarily repeating a specific exegetical point, though that obviously comes with the territory, being faithful to the tradition of exegesis. But the substantial point here is fidelity to that tradition which sets the boundaries and rules for what our uh, interpretation of the scriptures can ultimately produce. Now, in contemporary commentary on Paul, new attention has been called to the question of whether Pistus Christu is faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ. My argument is that it is the faithfulness of Christ because, grammatically speaking, it could be translated either way. But exegetically speaking, faithfulness of Christ makes a great deal more sense. Here's one reason. At the end of the letter to the uh, end of, uh, of Romans chapter 4, we hear that we are justified by he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So this is very important because Christ and God as personal names refer to two distinct persons in, in the New Testament. It refers to God the Father and to the second person, the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so if we see that the object of faith at the end of Romans is he who raised Jesus from the dead, then it suggests that the object of the faith which we have in Romans 3 is that same person, God the Father. The subject of the faith, he who is the paradigm and model for that faith, is Jesus himself. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, lives in a way that is perfectly appropriate and consistent to his divine sonship. But he weaves that relationship, which he has eternally had with the Father, into the life of the human family, such that we can share in that relationship by the Holy Spirit, such that the Spirit is called the Spirit of the Son, who brings us into the communion that the Son has with the Father by the uncreated operations or activities of God. Now, this pattern of life, this rhythm of being, I think is signified or denoted by this Pauline phrase, faithfulness of Christ. Now, in the letter to the Hebrews, chapters 3 to 4, we see an unambiguous discussion of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I think Hebrews was written by Paul. We can get into that another time. But I think if we look at the context of Hebrews, Paul was talking about Jesus' work as high priest of the new covenant. I think if we look at Hebrews and we then look back at Romans, we see that Paul is, in fact, not only speaking about the same things, but he's using the same categories and, indeed, is using a number of the same texts. For example, Romans 8, we hear that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Well, that is a quotation from Psalm 110, where the son of David is a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. He is the Lord who is at the right hand of God. It's one of those texts which is used frequently in the ministry of Jesus and is used in the letter to the Hebrews. We also see in Romans chapter 3 that God sets forth Jesus as an illustrion. Now, how do we translate this word? Well, it's sometimes translated propitiation. It's sometimes tra translated expiation. Both of those words could be given legitimate theological interpretations. But I think exegetically speaking, the best reading of that is mercy seat, because that is what the word actually refers to in the Septuagint. It is the mercy seat whom God sets forth by the faithfulness of Christ, because it is by the faithfulness of Christ that Jesus as high priest sprinkles clean the creation, which is signified by the mercy seat, which is signified by the tabernacle. And it is by union with Christ that we come to enter into that purity as well. We also see in Romans 3, uh, 23, that all has sinned and lack or fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is such a commonly quoted passage that sometimes we don't pay attention to the way it actually frames its teaching. What is the glory of God? This is not the first time the word has appeared in Romans. So, or, uh, uh, Romans 1.23. They exchanged, that is, rebellious humanity, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling birds and reptiles and so forth. The glory of the immortal God. The concept of glory is here connected with the notion of immortality. And again, in Romans 2, 6, those who in well-doing seek for glory and honor, that's Psalm 8, a little lower than the gods, but crowned man with glory and honor, quoted in Hebrews, glory, honor, and immortality. God will give them a good verdict on the final day. How is that good verdict given? It's the resurrection of their body. Romans 6, 4, Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father. And this is spoken in the context of us being baptized into Christ. And then in Romans 8, the glory is revealed in us such that the revelation of us as the children of God is the hope for all creation because that glory of God is that quality he has which, which uh, expresses his immortality, his necessary and perfect standing as the source of all existence. And because he communicates that very quality to us through the incarnate Jesus Christ, we share in that glory and we communicate it to the creation because we are made lords of the creation. We inherit the creation. As Paul himself says, we are joint heirs with the Messiah. And so we become the hope of all creation. So we see when read in this light that divinization is essential to our understanding of the theology of Romans. Now, in relation to the faithfulness of Christ, which is what this is all about, its contextual meaning in Romans 3 is based on something we read in Romans 3, verses 3 to 5. In Romans 3, 3 to 5, what Paul is talking about, and indeed in verses 3, 1 to 8, is God had given Israel a unique vocation in relation to the world. Israel was meant to be the instrument in God's hand, the clay in his hand, by which he would bring healing to all humanity. This is a theme we see throughout the Hebrew Bible. 
We've talked about it in some, some of my other videos, how the Hebrew Bible is all about this. This is not a New or New Testament thing. This is a biblical theme. Israel was entrusted, Paul says, with the oracles of God. Now, and in, to be entrusted with something does not mean you're just given it. It means you are given it for the sake of doing something with it. So in the parable of the talents, we might say that the master entrusted his servant with a talent. That is, he didn't just give him a talent. He gave it. Uh, he gave the talent to the servant so that the servant would do something with it. And what's Israel supposed to do? They're supposed to be a light to the world. Romans 2, 17 to 24 does not just say that Jews are sinners too. That's how it's often read. As N.T. Wright points out, Romans 2, 17 to 24 deals with Israel's calling and election as being the light of the world. Because what does Paul's interlocutor say? He says uh, that he is a light to those who are in darkness. He is a guide to the blind. And Paul says Israel's infidelity, read Deuteronomy 28 to 29 on this, Israel's infidelity has led to the nations blaspheming Israel's God on their account. So this is the exact opposite of the purpose for which they were called. Then Romans 2, 25 to 29, just as verses 17, 24 dealt with Deuteronomy 28 to 29, uh, Romans 2, 25 to 29, speaks of those who have been circumcised in their heart. Read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. You read about the circumcision of the heart that occurs at the Messianic regathering of Israel. I say it's Messianic because if you look at the way that it's used in its overarching canonical context, it's part of the same group of prophecies that deals with the Messiah. I just want to throw that out there now so nobody said in the comments, oh, we're just making that up. I'm not. So, in Romans 3, 3 to 5, Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? Well, who are the some? It's Israel. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. What value is circumcision? Much in every way. For to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Unfaithful to what? To that mission to be a light to the world. Does their infidelity nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And that is the context for Romans 3.22, which says the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ unites two things. Number one, Jesus is Israel. Something throughout the New Testament. Prayers that are spoken by Israel in the Old Testament are found on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. Things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament happened to Jesus in the New Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son. Read that in the Gospel of Matthew. Now Matthew takes this verse from Hosea and he uses it to explain Jesus' exodus from the land of Israel down to physical Egypt. Point being, what happens to Israel in the Old Covenant foreshadows and anticipates what happens to Jesus because Jesus is a one-man Israel. That's why Isaiah 49.3, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The Messiah is Israel in person. He sums up the identity and destiny of the whole nation. So Israel's infidelity comes and falls upon Jesus who receives their curse. That's the curse of the Torah, the curse of exile and death. And he is faithful. And so brings about the fulfillment of Israel's elective purpose. But also, the faithfulness of God, because the unfaithfulness of Israel calls into question whether God is going to be faithful, not just to his purpose to bless the nations, but to bless them through Abraham's seed. And now Jesus fulfills both ends of the question, because he is God being faithful to Israel as Messiah. 
He is the one in whom God returns to Zion to be crowned king. That's what's happening at the triumphal entry. And so when Jesus celebrates the Eucharist, he has done so in the context of flipping over a table in the temple. He then sets a new table in the upper room. Upper room. Notice the connection with an ascent to heaven here. Okay, This isn't just, you know, oh, that's a cute bit of allegorization. There's all sorts of stuff about the context and the other things which happen in that upper room, which suggest temple themes are going on here. Uh, inward is upward, by the way. Okay, and in biblical theology, inward is upward. You, if you look at the structure of the tabernacle, there are these poles which run horizontally through it. They're the kinds of poles that you would use to actually hold something physically up. Now, they were not used for that purpose in the tabernacle because they didn't need to be used in the tabernacle because there's this thing called gravity and they were running horizontally. But what they did is they helped accentuate and underscore this point that inward signifies upward. The further, uh, the more deeply you enter into the tabernacle, the higher you're going on the holy mountain. Because tabernacle is the miniature holy mountain. Okay, Lots of ways to show this sort of thing. So Jesus turns, up, turns over a table in the temple He's just come to Zion. He's just come to Jerusalem. He says, you did not know the day of your visitation. That refers to a visitation of God to his people. He fulfills the prophecy in Haggai where God says, in this place, I will fill up with my glory. And then Jesus sets up another table, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the enduring mode of God's personal presence with his people as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so we've gotten a little bit off track, but hey, it's my channel. so, And I've got a lot of new viewers, so this is kind of the stuff that I'm them all, all about. It's not just kind of polemical stuff, but there's a lot of just showing you the glory and the beauty of God as revealed in his word in the Bible. Uh, some people, by the way, would say that, uh, that the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is Jesus. Well... I understand the point this, that, that you're trying to make in saying that, but uh, Maximus the Confessor says that symbolically speaking, the Logos is incarnate three times. Symbolically speaking, but you can still speak this way. He says uh, he's incarnate um, in creation as its archetype of existence, in scripture as revelation, and then in the incarnation most truly and perfectly and fully. So the, the Bible is a sign and it's an emblem of the incarnation. So we put the gospel book right by the Eucharistic elements in the divine liturgy. So it's the faithfulness of Christ which realizes the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is a phrase which is rooted in the Old Testament. In particular, it's used throughout Isaiah 40 to 55. If you look at Isaiah 40 to 55, we see all of this language which is then used in Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Galatians. Uh, Isaiah 45, for example, says, Only in the Lord shall Israel be justified and shown glory. In Isaiah 53, we read that the servant shall justify many. And it's in this context that God says, in righteousness shall I send out a word. Well, righteousness here doesn't refer to something which is imputed to somebody. Rather, it refers to God's right behavior as king of the world. Kings in the Bible are redeemers. They're conquerors. They win back the land from those who have stolen it. And they give it back to those uh, who had their right to it. And so God's righteousness is embodied in his faithfulness to do exactly what he promised to do. The covenant is made by a king 
with his people. It's why it's the same form which is used by kings in the ancient world to covenant with the nations over which they ruled and to whom they were bound. Psalm 143, which in fact Paul quotes in Romans 3, it says, No flesh shall be justified in his sight, has the psalmist praying for God to save him in righteousness. So the righteousness of God is that power or quality which is embodied in God's saving faithfulness and specifically in the messianic context in the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. And Paul says that it is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah for all who are faithful. Now in context, he's just said, all have sinned and fall short of or lack the glory of God. Now we see that kind of language then used in Romans 5.12 where all have sinned and then are subject to death. So we see this double all language. For, there's one use of all in a negative sense, in the sense of death. Then there's another use of all in the sense of life and resurrection. So um, all have sinned and that is remedied by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who are faithful. Well... Just look at Romans 5, which it anticipates, where the sin of Adam means death for all, and the redeeming work of Christ, the obedience of Christ, means the justification of life for all. It's another reason why I say the language of condemnation and justification needs to be understood as a way of referring to the language of death and resurrection. What is the condemnation which is pronounced upon Adam? Is it damnation? No, in context, the condemnation is death. And condemnation is simply the opposite of justification.